Welcome to a special episode of the Retail Exchange Podcast in association with World Retail Congress. Brought to you by Visual Thinking and Style Psychology. In fashion in particular, a lot of people don't realise it is one of the biggest polluters on the planet. I mean, it accounts for 10% of the world's CO2 emissions, 20% of the world's wastewater production. The amount of water that is used to produce one cotton T-shirt is enough drinking water for one adult for one year. So we have to do something. We have to change consumer perception and we have to do that by gathering the data and making it available to people so they can look at it and say, "Okay, I understand the difference between this brand and this brand. I'm going to choose this brand. But at the end of the day, the retailer will provide what the consumer requires. Welcome to this special podcast looking at Retail 2030. I'm your guest host, Ian McGarrigal, Chair of the World Retail Congress. This episode from the Retail Exchange podcast series looks at the issues of environmental trends. To help me understand where those trends are leading us, I'm delighted to welcome my guests, Ian Patterson, Head of Retail Customer Engineering for Google, Ewan Venters, Commercial Director of Fairtrade Foundation, and Ingrid Calderoni, founder of Bulk Market. Ian, Ewan, and Ingrid, welcome to you all. Thanks for joining me. So just to start off this discussion, um, what's brought us to this point in terms of why is it at such uh, heightened sort of levels of, of awareness, and where does that take us forward through to, to 2030? Ewan. Yeah, I think it has been around for a while, but it's suddenly broken through and something that was considered niche has now become mainstream, both for consumers, for big corporations and for small business. I think the reason it's become even more mainstream is obviously the Attenborough moment, which brought it to everyone's attention and the fact that anyone who goes on holiday can see a well-known brand empty bottle for example on the beach so it's all around us the other thing that i think has made it more mainstream and will make it much more mainstream as we move towards 2030 is the fact that if you look at the uk recently fair trade became part of the national curriculum so kids are being taught about fair trade at school that will have an impact in 2030 and if you also look at the research we have done 75 percent of consumers in europe physically care about where the product came from who is involved in making it and that is much much higher amongst younger people so i do think it's become mainstream but it's going to become much more important so it's interesting to point about fair trade uh, being part of the educational curriculum. So yeah. the effect of that will be that uh, uh, consumers, young consumers as they become consumers, um, will be have a much heightened awareness and asking questions of products, you think? They grew up with it. Uh, and, you know, I'm privileged to go and talk at schools and the kids really care about it. And when you talk about where cocoa comes from, for example, and cocoa is a very difficult crop to grow. It's not grown in a farm, it's grown in the middle of a jungle where typically the person who grows it has to walk five miles in the heat to get there, then works in sweating conditions and doesn't earn a decent income. You start telling kids about these things and it suddenly puts into perspective the treat that they love and what's happened to actually get it to them and that the price they're paying for that is not allowing people to to have a decent life. Yeah. And kids care deeply about that. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so uh, Ingrid, what do you think about where we are at this 
point in time and looking forward over the next 10 years, but why do you think we've got to this point of uh, much more sort of heightened awareness? Well, uh, I think I consider myself as a millennial as well. Uh, and as all the, all the young people out there, I was very angry and I was very feeling very let down by the system and by the retailers uh, on not knowing where things were coming from. And, well, information is all around. So you get information from the internet, from, you know, documentaries. Blue Planet 2 was the big thing that I think uh, pushed all this, um, you know, this climate change agenda into the mainstream uh, two years ago. Uh, and I was lucky enough to actually launch my business at the time that um, this information was out there and everyone was talking about it. Um, my personal experience for is pretty much um, I wanted to, I want the retailers to tell me the truth, but they weren't. So I just created the business model that I wanted that existed, and uh, I wanted to share this with people. And I um, and I really feel that this is going to grow. I think. Um, the big ones, when my retail niche is more grocery, so I think people are more looking into knowing more about the food. You, you have you have this into fashion, so the cotton mm-hmm. um, farming. People know now the sweatshops. They want to know where, how people they work in these conditions in these um, countries, and how this you know all the ingredients and all the raw yeah. materials are done and, and collected and, and with food is the same thing we want to know food miles we want to know about the farmers if it's organic if it has certifications so all this I think is more and more mainstream it's not a niche anymore and also not um, something that is just you know so it's not a, something just reserved to more wealthy people I think it's more like getting widespread everyone is more you know, sustainable in terms of economy, people can afford yeah, eating yeah. organics. You, you should explain a l- just very quickly your business. If it just give yes, us a very... well, my business is pretty much um, a, grow, a, a plastic-free shop. Uh, I was the first in London launching two years ago, uh, out of my desperation, fi- trying to find an alternative. Um, and um, the business model is more re- around the community. Uh, I believe that this is a really, really strong, it will play a strong part in 10 years' time. Um and uh, I wanted to empower people. I didn't want to dictate how they would consume, how they would shop, but I wanted them to think about by themselves and make their own choices and, and teaching them how to do things and how to, you know, make make it do and mend and, you know, all this sharing economy and recycling. So it's plastic-free, but also is it the, the ingredients that you sell is, and where you source them from? Is that, is that... Yeah, so uh, everything's fair trade, of course. Everything's organic. Um, and everything is local, so the idea is uh, diminishing the food miles, so people have the total control, like they know which farms comes their tomatoes, their courgettes, and their uh, even beauty products. So that's a new section that we created recently. Uh, skincare is something very strange because you don't know, you don't understand ingredients on the label, and there are lots of harmful things in there which are not really tested or uh, research it in, in depth. So uh, we wanted to make it simple, go back to the basics. We wanted to make people to learn how to make their own skincare products and teach them how to do it. Yeah, yeah. So um, Ian, you work with uh, retailers and uh, businesses from across a wide range of sectors, how, you know, and uh, you're very close partners with them. How do you view this awareness of uh, the environment and sustainability? I do. Well, I, I, I'd love to describe myself as a millennial, but I probably wouldn't get away with that. Um, but I have kids and, and, and it's important to me that they, they kind of grow up in a world that's not affected by climate change. I think what's happened, 
recently, and, and people now seem to be much more aware of climate change, is, is kind of access to the data on what's happening. I think if you go back 10 years, it was very, very easy to, for people to say, oh, no, it's not happening, and, and, uh, and to dismiss it. I think now we, we're in a situation where we are starting to pull together data from a variety of sources, and we can prove, it's measurable, we can actually show that there is climate change happening. Um, and I think for retailers, um, it, it's, it's now time for them to start to think about how they can look deeper into their supply chains. So a typical retailer, I work with a lot of fashion retailers, would look into their supply chain and they might see one level down, possibly two if they're very, very, very good. So they can see where their, their clothing is manufactured, possibly can even see where the fabric is manufactured. But to get down to the spinning and the growing, there's a real disconnect there. There's a lack of, there's a fragmentation of the supply chain, a lack of visibility. Um, so it's interesting, Ingrid, that you're talking about cotton. Um, one of the things that we're doing is we've, we've got a collaboration with Stella McCartney um, where we're, we're trying to collect data from further down in that supply chain to really start to connect the, the, the graph and the network of, of you know, growers, of spinners, of weavers, of fabric manufacturers. And to understand the practices that are going on, they're looking at, you know, are they using the, the right uh, amount of water? Are they, are they farming and spinning in a, a sustainable way? Um, and surfacing that data to the fashion retailers and the fashion brands to help them make you know, more sustainable choices. But it's not just about, you know, moving cotton production from, let's say, you know, Pakistan to Egypt or whatever. Um, it's about then educating people on the ground and, and going in and we're working with a number of kind of uh, global organizations that are actually on the ground and trying to help people to understand what are the best practices for doing this um, and, and, and how can, can they do that. I think um, in fashion in particular, a lot of people don't realize it, it is one of the biggest polluters on the planet. I mean, it accounts for 10% of the world's CO2 emissions, 20% of the world's wastewater production. The amount of, t of, of water that is used to produce one cotton t-shirt uh, is enough drinking water for one adult for one year. So this is really, really critical. And, you know, and yet we, we kind of were in this society where it's, it's still, you know, it's still considered to be okay to go out and buy five or six t-shirts and wear them once or twice and then throw them away. Um, if we don't change that, um, by 2030, we're going to be producing uh, 100 million tonnes of clothing every year. And that sounds like a big number. It's about the weight of a small Scottish mountain. Um, and 75% of that will go to landfill. So we have to do something. We have to change consumer perception and we have to do that by gathering the data and making it available to people so they can look at it and say, okay, I understand the difference between this brand and this brand. I'm going to choose this brand. It's, it's really interesting. We're focused on retail 2030 and, you know, you can look at the rise of uh, online, how that's changing retail and, you know, um, you know some retail formats uh, uh, going by the wayside because of that and seeing cost-based, but actually the, one of the biggest issues is is the very issue you raised, isn't it? I mean, at the World Retail Congress, a lot of the retailers we talk to talk about their what's their relevancy, what's their purpose in business, but actually you ask questions when you put those points about uh, you know, the retail industry is one of the most polluting industries in, in the world. Um, where do we... <laughs> it's a fundamental question for retail, isn't it? Uh, how... Can that business model be sustainable going forward, looking at 2030, if it's still operating in the way it is today? Is that 
Is that right? Is, it, is that sustainable, if I can use that word? Um, I think, it, I mean, it comes back to consumer choice. I mean, retail is all about, you know, understand what your consumer wants and then satisfy that need at its most basic level. And, and I think, you know, as a retail industry, you know, we have to give people the tools to make that choice. And if retailers all stand up and say, we want sustainable clothing, we want sustainable food, then, then sorry, if consumers say that, then, then retailers will respond um, because that's how, that's the business model and that's how they stay in business. Well, Tony, Ingrid, that was your, as a yeah. millennial consumer, that was your starting point, I was wasn't about it? to say, um, I think um, the public demand needs, uh, we have the public demand. So when this grows, they put the pressure on the retailers uh, because, you know, retailers, they need to listen to the consumers so they can adapt. And it's pretty much like the climate changes, people saying, we don't want this anymore. We want to know what the provenance, we want to know the carbon footprint, uh, we want information, we want the truth. So they need to adapt and they need to be able to be transparent. And transparency, I think, is very, very important for the next 10 years. Yeah, yeah. So, so you and you talk in schools and education, but yeah. when you talk to retail in, in, in our discussion, point of our discussion, what, what sort of reaction have you got? Is it very receptive? Is it, are they wanting to? It's mixed. I would say it, the responsibility, and I agree with Ian that, Retailers are very adaptable, they're very flexible, they will provide consumers with what they want. So it is about consumers being prepared to pay a bit more money for sustainable products, to give someone a living income, to pay a bit more such that you're not wasting packaging. And so the consumer's got a huge role to play in this as well. Uh, I at the moment, £1.7 billion worth of fair trade products are bought every year in the UK. So that's from nothing to that. So it shows consumers, some consumers are prepared to do that. As we said earlier, because of particularly the younger generation, that's going to become more and more the case. And I think retailers will have to adapt. And I, I agree with Ingrid in that technology will allow consumers to find out more about exactly where products are going to come from and I think retailers will have more of a responsibility and will be asked by their consumers to tell them the story of where the product on the shelf actually came from. Uh, I think some retailers are more sort of receptive to it than others but at the end of the day the retailer will provide what the consumer requires. Um, I think about um, well, being a plastic-free and package-free shop um, has a lot to do about with affordability. Like, we sell only organic certified yeah. food, and that is, has a cost. Uh, and uh, one of the recurrent questions is, uh, what are your prices compared to supermarkets? Everyone asks that. And the thing is, it can be cheaper because you get only what you need. Not pushing a consumer, uh, like kilo of potatoes if they just need two if they're a family of one or two people or they flat sharing of the young you know you have different lifestyles so uh, we cater for every lifestyle and then this means that less food waste and also people can reassess their lifestyles so uh, they can learn to cook meals nourishing meals they're not going to rely on ready meals they're going to save money they're going to be healthier they're going to um learn what they need. They don't need to spend so much money. Um, a lot of people come to the store and they say, wow, I got all these things and I just spent, I don't know, 15 pounds. With So this is such a great value for money. And I said, yes, because you're just taking what you need. Mm -hmm. So 
that I think is a changing lifestyle, a changing mindset in con in how people con how people consume and how people see um, you know the products and interact with with this. Still to come on this special episode of the Retail Exchange podcast. It's a strange dichotomy. I mean, if you look at um, the, the fast fashion retailers, you know, their target market is kind of 14 to 30-year-olds um, who are exactly the same uh, group of people who are out on the streets protesting, you know, earlier this year. Um, and, and it's strange. And, and maybe we just need to, um, as an industry, connect that thought in people's heads. Consumers are more and more looking for authenticity. So if you take... Some retailers, sustainability to some degree is a bit of a marketing thing. And more and more, thankfully, consumers are beginning to smell that. And I think fundamentally the change retailers will have to make, and some do at the moment, but the, will be, be totally authentic about sustainability. It's not just a marketing program, it's actually part of your business ethos. Completely get the growing consumer pressure, but it just also seems to be a sort of schizophrenic behaviour as well. I mean, the fashion industry, particularly the fast fashion retailers, I think pretty much all of them are growing revenues and profits. So consumers are still saying, we still want those 10 t-shirts at X price and we will throw them away, etc. And, uh, and and yet, that's, as you were saying, Ian, that's kind of one of the worst uh, sectors in terms of its uh, effect on the climate. So... Yes, consumers are displaying some behaviours, but equally accepting others. I mean, where, where do we think this will change? I mean, is this something retailers shouldn't take lightly? I mean, it's, it's, it's a strange dichotomy. I mean, if you look at um, the, the fast fashion retailers, you know, their target market is kind of 14 to 30-year-olds um, who are exactly the same uh, group of people who are out on the streets protesting, you know, earlier this year. Um, and, and it's strange. And, and maybe we just need to, um, as an industry, connect that thought in people's heads. And again, I think it comes back to um, making people aware of the fact that their, that their choices have, have these consequences and giving people the data and the information. So, for example, yes, as in with Ingrid's store, you know, the ability to say, you know, where exactly has this, this item come from? You know, perhaps we need to do that with more complex items, you know, such as fashion, um, such as, you know, manufactured foods and things and, and have the ability to track back in the supply chain to say, yep, we can tell you which farm that came from or we can tell you which particular, you know, region this came from. We can we can give you information about how it was grown, how it was, you know, whether it was sustainable and then you can make your own choice as a consumer. I, I think, you know, if we start thinking about, um, you know, forcing people down a certain road, I think that that's that's not a not a good place to be. I think it has to start with consumer wants, consumer desires, and and then give it to, give it to the retailers to satisfy. Ingrid, I think knowledge is very important. I think giving information is very important. Um, myself, almost four years ago, when I started on this journey of zero waste and trying to make as less waste as possible, it's impossible to do zero waste because you know everything is packaged, everything has something, uh, and uh, it's impossible to be totally, you know, no no carbon footprint at all. 
unless you live, I don't know, you are Hermitan living in the mountain and you grow your own food and live off grid, but in our case, it's impossible. Uh, it's knowledge. Uh, I was um, good with feeling good with myself, recycling my stuff and, you know, oh, I'm doing my bit for the planet. But then when I discovered that recycling is not the, the, the solution because the recycling systems are overloaded and you have so much, so much waste that is impossible to process all this waste. And then most, that's why um, plastic bottles, drink bottles, they are totally recyclable, but they end up in the oceans because you don't have uh, all the facilities to process this waste. Um, and also then a lack of knowledge of people recycling because it's so hard. We have so many types of materials. So I just decided, let's go on the, back to the basics. That's just, you know, live in a way that you don't need to buy package things or what I can cut. So I think knowledge is key in changing consumer behavior and demand so people knowing why, okay, so if I buy 20 shirts, what is the impact? I am happy with that or not. Um, having the knowledge in your hands, you can make a decision. But if nobody tells you, it's very easy to go there and buy something because you don't know the harm that that product creates in the environment, in the society, and everyone involved. So you are unaware. Ewan? I, th I think the, the retail, one of the huge things about retail is how good they are at adapting and adapting quickly. The slight contradiction there is consumers are more and more looking for authenticity. So if you take some retailers, sustainability to some degree is a bit of a marketing thing. And more and more, thankfully, consumers are beginning to smell that. And I think fundamentally the change retailers will have to make, and some do at the moment, but the, will be be totally authentic about sustainability. It's not just a marketing program, it's actually part of your business ethos. And some retailers have got that at the moment, and a lot of retailers don't, but I think that will be the big change that has to happen. You and it's really interesting, you were talking about retailers need to embrace sustainability, but consumers looking for authenticity and that's something you work with uh, retailers and other businesses but how what makes that happen within a business to you can't just say we're going to be authentic one day um what is it uh, the ceo has to start with them uh, to embrace it in business and what does that look and feel like i think at a micro level it can start with an idea an initiative and if I, I'll give you a good example, Greg's, who you would never initially expect to be doing fair trade, they started doing fair trade coffee a while ago. And the whole organization embraced it because they wanted to make people proud to work for Greg's. They wanted that authenticity story and they also wanted good quality coffee. And they've gone from very little in coffee up to the number three out of home coffee retailer in the UK, which is incredible. And we were a big part of that, helping them do that. So that is an organization that's now looking at a lot of other sustainability initiatives because they've, they've seen it working very well for them. I think if you look at it at a macro level, you really need the consumers to demand it, as I said, but when you get into the corporate world, you need shareholders to demand it as well. And I think 
you need the management team within the organization, in my experience, to see that the business depends on it for a variety of reasons, and then they will make it integral to the business. And I've seen that happen. An example I would give you, Co-op, who, to choose them as a retailer, they have come out and said everything that can be fair trade will be fair trade, which is a much bigger commitment than just having a few piecemeal fair trade products. They also have a lot of other sustainability initiatives going on, and that's been embraced into the heart of the organisation, and they see it as fundamental to what they're doing. Uh, so I think it can start from an initiative at a micro level, but it can also start from shareholders or in the case of the co-op or members who demand that they do these things and they've gone on a really exciting sustainability journey because of it. Mm. So on that point about what affects change, I mean, uh, is it enough for businesses to respond to their consumers or ultimately is change affected primarily by governments uh, bringing in legislation to say, as we've seen, I don't know, with uh, banning cars in cities on certain days or... Um, I was told at the moment in the Netherlands there's a moratorium on, on building work because there's uh, particular ingredients uh, or, or uh, vital minerals for the building industry uh, aren't available, so they've put a, um, a block on it, so there's no building work going on at the moment, apparently, in the Netherlands. So, so that's a government initiative. But is it? what do you think about, ultimately, what is the best way to affect change? Well, can I, I mean, I'd, I'd just like to echo everything that Ewan just said. I think, um, you know, if you're looking at sustainability initiatives of any kind, you know, for retailers and, and any organisation, it has to be part of the culture. Um, otherwise, you, you're more like you're paying lip service to it. I mean, you know, as an example, it, I mean, Google obviously has lots and lots of data centres. Um, we buy enough renewable energy to power all of those data centres. Um, we're one of the biggest corporate purchases of renew renewable energy in the world. But that's because it comes from the corporate culture, Google's culture is very much that you know we we're kind of custodians of the planet um and i think you know if, if you're a retailer you know you've got this kind of retailers typically have vast estates of property you know large buildings lots of lights lots of flashing lights lots of signage lots of it um and i think there is the scope there to look at how can they make that energy usage more more sustainable and more renewable but it has to be part of the culture and I think, you know, you have to make it, as you say, a company that people are proud to work for yeah. because it shines this beacon out that says, you know, look at us, you know, we are, you know, we, we take this on board, this is part of us. I think as a side effect to that, that makes you then, you know, it sends a message to your consumers and consumers who are looking to make a choice to say, you know, I want to work with these companies, I want to buy from these companies that are more sustainable can actually make that. And I think if, if you... If you take that kind of grassroots bottom-up approach, you know, I mean, hopefully you get to the point where you don't need to legislate for it. Um, you know, you, you get to the point where public opinion takes over um, and, and this is just kind of forced through um, almost kind of, you know, by, by a grassroots movement as opposed to kind of top-down regulation. So um, I think you and you said uh, the, the Blue Planet moment and there have been a few moments and uh, we're recording this just a week after millions took to the streets on climate uh, uh, day. Um, there's been a huge upsurge in, in pivotal points. Um, are you seeing businesses reacting positively and quickly to, to that growing uh, awareness? Um, we've seen a number of initiatives that have been announced by uh, various retailers, um, you know, Sainsbury's, I think, pledging to be plastic-free or reducing dramatically, and uh, um, Zara's parent company, Inditex, um, claiming, uh, uh, stating that they want everything by 2023 to be uh, organic and recyclable, uh, etc. So, 
are you are you impressed? Is it enough? What what where do you think we are? I think we're on a journey, and we're quite a long way from the end of the journey. Uh, but you are seeing a number of big corporates, whether they're brands or retailers actually do things that are really moving them on the sustainability path. Uh, I would say if I used cocoa as an example again, all of the big cocoa manufacturers realize that there will be no cocoa in the future if they don't do something. So they've all either working with people like Fairtrade or working with Fairtrade plus their own schemes, they've all introduced schemes for sustainability in cocoa, all slightly different, but all aimed at making sure that cocoa is sustain, sustainable into the future, such that the people we're talking about in 2030 can go into a shop and buy whatever it is, a Mars bar or whatever. Uh, that wasn't happening before because I think it was a cosmetic thing. You put, a lot of people put a fair trade mark on the pack as a, as a marketing tool. I think fundamentally, for example, and it's a lot of other companies doing the same, but the big cocoa companies are working very hard to make sure that cocoa is around for the future. Yeah. So, Ingrid, coming back to your business, it's interesting, um, as you said, you're a millennial. Are all your customers millennials? No, not at all. Um, we have a lot, a lot of young families, especially mothers, their uh, parents, they are uh, worried about the future of their children, the world that they're going to live in. So the lot of people like that, um, older people influenced by their grandchildren, children telling them plastic is bad, you need to change, you need to swap to another reusable option. Uh, is all sorts of people from all walks of life. Um, I would say on the same note of how can we change things? Uh, people ask me all the time, how can we change things? I think it's a combination of a lot of things, a combination of public demand, is a combination of retailer responsibility and also uh, policies. Uh, policies are important, yes, because um, as an example, plastic is something so cheap. That's why it's so widespread and it's cheaper to use a virgin plastic than recycling plastic because recovering that material is more costly. So that's why uh, Coca-Cola or other companies that don't commit into having totally recyclable, recycled um, bottles or uh, packaging because it's just so much, this is going to increase the cost, it's going to get the profits down. Profit, profitability is also something that you need to think about. We were discussing a lot about um, experiences and um, this uh, economic factor that is a feel-good factor uh, versus profits. And then this is actually the, what we need to think about for the future. It's not about you know just growth at any costs, but as a sustainable and you know steady growth, a growth that we can continue for the future generations. Uh, the economic model at the moment is not possible, and the way people consume things is not possible. So people are seeing this through documentaries, through information, through articles. And yes, it's all, all sorts of people that are impacted by this information coming to places like mine because they, they can't find anywhere else uh, where they can be catered for their needs. So, and it's very frustrating. Um, the, the, big, the big supermarket has started now accepting people to bring their own containers to store for refill because you had a lot of these policies things. Like in my case, I would, um, one thing, uh, employees are not trained for this kind of customers. 
So they're trained for only, you know, stock shelves and give information, basic information. But if someone says, oh, I have my Tupperware, I want to put some fish in, in here, can you help me? They don't know. There are lots of things like, oh, because of health and safety, we can't do that. But that's totally a lie. Um, I, we have the highest hygiene level in our store and we are really, really, health and safety is paramount to us and it can be done. So it's just a matter of they are so sticking to policies and not listening to what people need. That's something else that needs to change. Yeah. Um, it's a combination of things, really. Yeah. I guess it comes back to that, the way that a retail business is structured and the way it's always been and the kind of uh, the back office, the systems. A lot of these things are going to be under strain by a different approach to business. I mean, uh, Ian, you've been at the heart of the technology world for quite some time. I mean, do you have a view on how the, the retail model where will it be impacted most and where do retailers need to look at their model to be able to address these issues? I think retail is evolving. Um, I think in previous podcasts we talked about kind of the, the, the shift away from high streets. Um, I, I think, again, it comes back to what consumers are looking for. Um, and, and, you know, many consumers are looking for immediacy. They're looking for simplicity. And I think that drove the kind of the, the, the shift to online. Um, I, I think, you know, many kind of, uh, many of the most innovative retailers are really reevaluating and reimagining their physical spaces uh, to, to act as like an experience. I mean, there, there are people who want to, to go to that, those stores and actually to, to physically experience those products. They want to, you know, they want to pick up the fruit and veg. They want to pick up the T-shirts. They want to, you know, try on the shoes, whatever it is. Um, and I think, you know, as, as long as retailers are prepared to be innovative and prepared to be agile and prepared to give customers what they want, um, then, then I think, you know, there's no reason why, you know, current formats can't continue to, to exist. Um, I think, I mean, and going back to the point about uh, um, authenticity, um, I, I think, you know, where we see retailers trying to do things that are, you know, environmental, and I'm sorry, I'm doing air quotes here, um, for marketing purposes, I actually think consumers are smart enough to see through that. Um, and I think, you know, it, I think it needs for retailers a fundamental shift in their approach and in their culture. You know, they have to embed this at the heart of their business processes. Um, you know, even if it's down to things like, you know, getting rid of single-use plastics in their head offices, it's, it's about sending that message to all employees and, and everybody in the stores that this is important and this is something we fundamentally have to change because consumer attitudes are changing and if the retailers don't change, then, then they're going to lose those customers. Oh, one thing that I was—I had a mental note in my mind when you were talking about that, saying um, about Blue Planet and all these uh, documentaries and information impacted retailers, uh, what they're doing now uh, after you know listening to the call, and um, there is also misunderstanding what is sustainable, and I think that's also a danger. Like uh, biodegradable is something that I totally despise because it's not sustainable at all. Uh, if it's made of plastic and it's biodegradable, that means it's going to break into microplastics and it's not going to disappear. Uh, we are talking about compostable. We're talking about something that can, you know, integrate with nature. And there are lots of solutions that, you know, um, new packaging, new technologies that they say they are sustainable. And there's a confusion because you know that retail, you can see retailers are willing to change and they want to embrace a change, but they pick the wrong one. They think it's sustainable, but it's not sustainable. 
I guess, yeah, as, as our knowledge improves over the years, one thing we're, you know, if we were told to stop doing one thing years ago and then it turns out that that's not the right thing to do, you know, told to drive diesel cars because it's better than petrol and etc. So it's, um, I guess it's hard to... <laughs> Sustainability is very hard. I mean, yeah. it's not a, a straight line. Uh, mm. What is, nothing is truly sustainable. Everything has a price and you need to balance what is more sustainable. Mm-hmm. It's not totally or 100% sustainable. Yes. It's just what is less damaging. Yeah. You need to ch- ch- choose, but you always have damage. You always have mm. a footprint. Human activities that you can't really, you know, live in this planet in a modern society without leaving a footprint behind. But you yeah. just need to choose the, the one which is the smallest. Yeah. yeah. I think that's also why it will not be possible to do through legislation alone because you're dealing with incredibly complex supply chains. And your example of the diesel versus the petrol is a classic example of that. Um, But the supply chains are just so complex. There's so many humans involved in them. There's so many livelihoods involved in them that very often if you simply legislate for something, the unintended consequences can have very bad human effects and very bad environmental effects, which is why it might sound naive, but it is really through consumer, shareholder, member change. They, they really want to, they, they really need to want to do it. And that's the way that it will happen in my view. I can see there's lots of positive things that businesses can do, but just want to ask you each to, in conclusion, the discussion. You know, as I say, we're focused on 2030, which of, of all these podcasts, that seems like a stretch given, you know, all the pressures we, we know about in terms of sustainability and climate change. But what what do you see as where the retail industry specifically should get to by 2030? What do you, what in your mind, could you paint a picture for us of what that industry might uh, might look like and what its priority should be to get to that point? Sorry, probably a big question to uh, to wrap up with, but... uh. I I think it'll be an industry that is much more aware of uh, where its raw ingredients are coming from and the impact those things have on on the environment. And the way it's going to do that is by improving the data across its supply chain. So there's an understanding of, you know, where are we getting this from? How many food miles or clothing miles has, has has it gone through? And making that available to consumers so they can make an informed choice. Yeah, I agree. I think information is key. Um, and um, also um, sharing this information and, and uh, transparency. And then, you know, just not retaining the control of it, but then sharing with everyone, because this is the thing that is going to drive change. People being on the same page. Yeah, yeah. So, and I would say similar things, but add that I think it will become much more micro community focused and that is a demand of society at the moment and even if you're a huge Tesco you'll have to recognize that your store in Milton Keynes is actually not part of a huge sort of corporate it's actually a store in Milton Keynes and it leaves a huge footprint on that community and it is set up it has the information such that it can deal with that great well Thank you uh, all for your contributions. It's been a really informative discussion. So uh, uh, you and Ingrid and uh, Ian, thank you very much uh, for being here and uh, thank you for all your contributions. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. If you enjoyed this special episode from the Retail Exchange, then be sure to check out the accompanying Retail 2030 Futures Report from the Retail Exchange and the World Retail Congress as we take a deeper dive into the issues covered. 
visit theretailexchange.co.uk for your free copy, and be sure to book your ticket for the 2020 World Retail Congress in Rome, once again bringing together the leaders of today's global retail industry to explore the new relevance agenda that is shaping the future of retail. Find out more by visiting worldretailcongress.com. I look forward to seeing you there, and thanks again for listening. Goodbye for now. You've been listening to a special episode of the Retail Exchange Podcast in association with World Retail Congress, brought to you by Visual Thinking and Style Psychology. Stay up to date with new podcast episodes by subscribing online at theretailexchange.co.uk and join the debate on Twitter, hashtag Retail Exchange. Thanks for listening.